0: The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 8th, 2014, the conservative nanny state edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate. I'm in Washington, D.C. Today, has the GOP suddenly become the party of ideas as it was 30 years ago? We will talk about Paul Ryan's poverty plan. Then, an effort to throw out three Supreme Court justices in Tennessee to tilt the balance of power in that state's court to Republicans. Then the Ebola panic, do you have it? Not the disease, the panic. Are you panicking about Ebola? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will discuss children, how much children are allowed to wander today as compared to a generation ago. Should they be allowed to wander more? Why have our habits changed so much? You can join Slate Plus, our great new membership Where these GabFest extra segments by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, or you can email me directly at david.plots at slate.com to get the best offer. We are back together after a fashion. John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent, is in a state that starts with W.
1: Correct, sir. It's not Washington.
2: I'm in in, Wisconsin. Fortunately, yeah.
0: uh, After doing some
2: reporting, Running into lots of uh, fabulous Gabfest listeners in uh, Milwaukee and Madison. I'm now uh, up in Sister Bay, Wisconsin for not doing some reporting.
0: Is there a Brother Bay?
2: Uh, no, I don't think there is. Huh? Just a sister. Yet mm-hmm. we are all brothers in Sister
0: Bay. In Sister Bay, and in uh, New Haven, where Emily does not want to be my brother. Emily is furious at me. Is Emily Bazelon, Slate senior editor. Why are you tearing your hair out, Emily? Explain to our listeners.
1: And I'm sure they all agree with me because the photo of us that is our icon makes us all look like used car salesmen. And you bullied John and me into accepting it months ago by saying that we were being prima donnas for objecting. And now every effort I, meet, I make to get it replaced, I think
2: we look like the like Midwestern regional best practices. Uh, intermediate sales team. Like, <laughs>
0: You're right. That's my guys. You don't understand. This is my next career. So I <laughs> want a photo that represents she, that.
2: And also, she couldn't tear her hair out because in that photo, her hair it's is like a helmet. It's <laughs> like a right. It's like a Kevlar helmet.
0: All I will, I have I to will say tear is, my hair. I'm out. going
1: on strike if we don't fix that photo soon. So just watch out.
0: All right. It is 73 pages long. It uses the word countercyclical. It is, of course, Paul Ryan's poverty plan. It's the latest GOP stab at regaining the title lost perhaps 20 years ago of Party of Ideas. Ryan is just one of several prospective GOP presidential candidates seeking credibility in policy, public policy. Marco Rubio has been making a play at immigration reform, although kind of given that up. Rand Paul is pushing Voting rights for ex felons. He's pushing for less surveillance. There is a general sense that there is there's a reform GOP that's emerging, and Ryan's poverty plan is the is the model of the moment. So, John, let's start with the plan itself. So, what is what is Ryan trying to get across with this uh, poverty plan, and and how have people received it?
2: Well, I think yeah, and there are sort of. We can talk about the sort of corrective. Some in the party are trying to launch with a kind of compassionate, conservative 2.0, which is pushing back against the uh, image Mitt Romney you know, was so effectively um, tarred with uh, in the 2012 election and the 47% video. And then there's the, the competition of ideas, which is slightly different. Not all the ideas are, are in that kind of compassion basket. But what Ryan's trying to do is basically... It's a version of the block grant, but it has a year's worth of kind of study behind it from his travels. He's been going around talking to different agencies, both public and private and religious and otherwise, that deal with poverty, and, and kind of this is the product of his travels. And the idea essentially is to take masses and masses of different federal programs, bundle them all together, send them to the states, and set up a system whereby... The central animating argument is that there, you shouldn't have a one-size-fits-all kind of poverty approach, that, it, that poverty is complex and highly, highly individualized. And so you need a mechanism that delivers the proper kind of help and sustenance to people and then measures it and sort of monitors it as as people try to, to either beat addiction or get some schooling or... Deal with whatever is uh, has has them in poverty, um, and so at the the kind of shiny piece to this is that you would have kind of caseworkers, or, or and, and and he says this is one option that could be um, could be picked up by the states, but that they could have caseworkers work with each individual poor person to help them through their particular needs.
0: So Emily, what liberals immediately jumped on in this plan, although there was some praise for specific ideas in it, was the grotesque contradiction between the plan that Ryan is proposing and the budget plans that he has proposed to much conservative acclaim over the past few years, which have attempted to cut government spending or balance government spending by making gigantic cuts to federal aid programs, largely for the poor, including food stamps. I think there was one figure where he wanted to take $125 billion out of food stamps in this new poverty plan there's no word of that. It's all – it's silent. He, he's proposing that to keep spending levels the same. So w- which, Ryan, are we to believe? Or, or, or can they be reconciled?
1: Well, I mean, they could be reconciled, but they are not reconciled. So I think you have a choice. You can celebrate some of the individual good ideas in this plan, like expanding the earned income tax credit. That is a really good idea. Or you can see – Hypocrisy here, and maybe something worse, which is that if Ryan can get credit by pretending to care about the poor, but then turn around and do all these things that actually have the much greater effects in taking away any efforts at wealth redistribution or enlarging the safety net, then that makes him even more sinister and dangerous. So I think that's the dance here, and it really just depends what he keeps pushing and whether this is. A kind of blip um, or he really sticks with it. I mean, I have to say his sustained attention to this issue is already surprising to me because he got pretty thoroughly beaten up a few months ago when he started talking about how the cause of um, The problems of poor people was like a tailspin of urban poverty, which sounded like code for blaming black people for their problems as opposed to thinking about structural issues like employment and schools. And yet he's like kind of back taking another swing. So I think you have to at least give him credit for sticking with this
2: one.
0: John, do you think he recognizes this contradiction? Has he been asked about it and acknowledged it?
2: Well, yeah, I think he does recognize it. I think what he's, what, when he's asked about it, what he says is essentially, my goal here was to try to change the broken delivery of services for the poor, that it shouldn't be coming out of Washington, and that there should be some measurement mechanism, and that the reason he doesn't want it to come from Washington is not just because Republicans don't like the federal government his argument is that civil society actually has whiffs of what maybe what Emily was talking about in our conversation about whether you call the police or not at the playground. Is that if you move it back to the states, that the the institutions and communities in the, in the states that are parts of neighborhoods and that deal with poverty and that have this that are effective operate in a super localized atmosphere, and that you want to you want to encourage that and build that up, and that. That's why he wants to focus the money kind of in, the, in as local a way as possible. That's the kind of theory behind it, not just sort of federalism. I, you know, I, I mean, find I, it, uh, I
1: really find... like the idea of the cutting red tape. I think there's an inherent attraction to that, and, and this plan is full of those ideas. I do think it's important to point out, though, that when you devolve money in block grants to the states, it usually means that the states then withdraw their own state funding, at least in part, for whatever you're paying for. So, you know, you have three federal dollars, and one of those state dollars moves away from poor people um, to a, a more politically powerful group. And I would – the plan doesn't address that.
0: I would actually even take issue with this idea of cutting red tape. The federal government is a fairly efficient deliverer of services, in part because it has such scale. If you have a single system which is doing something on a national scale, as with Social Security or Medicare, it's a pretty efficient mechanism. Not in every case. There are cases where, it's, where you, you lose the subtlety you need and you lose the flexibility you need. But in general, the federal government is a fairly good deliverer of services. States are less good. Because the quality of employees at state governments are – it tends to be very wide-ranging. In general, I think people think federal government employees are are of higher quality. And also, I think there's a categorical error when conservatives talk about devolving things to localities and then talk about state governments doing it. It is very different to say the state government is doing it and saying you're – your neighborhood is doing it. Like state governments are huge. They are also distant. They are also riven by factionalism and partisanship and are, uh, you know, corrupt and incompetent and don't have a their finger exactly on the pulse of what is happening in every poor neighborhood in the state. Now, they're slightly closer than the federal government, but it is just wrong to say that states are like the neighborhood community center. They aren't.
2: Well, I mean, I think, I think his argument is to get it to the community center in his fast away as possible and you're likely to get it there faster if it's done through a state than through the federal government. You got to do some mechanism for the collecting of money and distributing it. So he would he wouldn't say like no you know if there could be a faster way to get it to the neighborhood then I'm sure he would be all for it.
1: I don't, I don't think that's true. I think this very much fits in with the conservative propensity to think that states are more there are just better centers of power and when you think of all the Republican controlled legislatures and state houses in the country right now, it lines up politically as well as in terms of ideology.
0: I also think given our recent history of of what has happened when we've looked at state when states take a role in national policy, when we devolve to states certain roles around government, it is not encouraging. If you think of the Affordable Care Act, it's just been a disaster. It's been a disaster because so many of the state exchanges don't work. It's been a disaster because so many states have refused, have declined to take Federal money they they could take to help, given a chance to help the poor people in their states, in a state like Mississippi, where you have the actual number of uninsured people rising at a time when states that that have taken this money are having huge drops in their uninsured population. It is
1: you're talking about Medicaid in, money now
0: in Medicaid money, but it's related to Obamacare. Uh, yes, totally. It's, it's quite it's quite brazen to say, oh, states are going to be so good at helping the poor when given this massive chance to help the poor recently, they've said, hell no, we're not going to do it.
2: Yeah. I don't think, I mean, if you look at the, listen to the way he talks about this. So obviously expanding the earned income tax credit is not devolving it to the state. And I think he, at part of this plan would be to have some kind of neutral agency. The big focuses of this plan are basically consolidation and measurement. And so if you're going to measure, you've got to, I don't think you can have, um, I don't know quite how he's going to do this. In other words, if you're, the measurement feels like a national function, too. I think, you know, I, I don't know, And just listening to him talk about it, it's not like, oh, give it to the states, it'll be all just great. I think his, his, what he tried to do is figure out what's the most effective, you know, and when he went on this tour, what's the most effective way to get to help people. And what he came away with was the idea that it needs to be hyper-local, I mean, that co- comports with what he believes about the role of the federal government. But in listening to him talk about it, his passion seems to be much more this idea of the, the individualized specificity of each individual poor person, and that's why he's so hyped up on local.
0: One of the things that I find interesting is when when you hear liberal media like us talk about not like you, John, but like Emily. Emily is the liberal media. When you hear liberal media like Emily Bazelon talk, talk mm-hmm. about talk about the party of ideas, it's it, it's just liberal saying, oh, good, Republicans are talking about liberal ideas. It means when when you say party of ideas, it basically means party of ideas around big government. The conservatives already are a party of ideas. They're ideas that are very clever and effective. If you think about the Using new laws to regulate abortion, or the very brilliant attacks on Obamacare, the legal attacks on Obamacare from all sorts of Don't different directions—guns and Gun, yeah, the, the Second Amendment—that's a, that's a great idea. There there are lots and lots of ideas, but the, but when when we talk about the party of ideas, it tends to be oh, what are we going to do around domestic policy that involves expanding government? That, that wasn't really a question. That was a filibuster. I guess the question I would have really for you, John, is. None of these ideas, if you think about immigration reform, has died a sorry, sad, miserable death recently. What will be the test that will say these ideas that some of these Republican would-be presidential candidates are proposing have some valence, they have some success? When, when are we going to be able to say, oh, they, the, the GOP at large actually will do anything with them because they haven't done anything with, with these ideas historically? Right.
2: Well, I, so you make a good point, although I think that the... the, the the title, Party of Ideas, is needs. There are a couple of different ways in which that's happening. So you have one thing that has nothing to do with the candidates, which is just a movement of sort of youngish conservatives feeling like, you know, cutting regulations and cutting taxes and austerity are, as a matter of policy, is kind of dead and worn out. And then also, as a matter of politics, isn't doing much to help the middle class and to deal with long term issues with wages and other even cultural issues that they think need addressed. So there's a kind of a think tank group of people out there in the world. And then there are the, the candidates. And I think what's new and about with the candidates that we haven't really seen, I mean, I would argue going all the way back to the, the race in 1980, is thats is what's now happening in the Republican field is what happened in the Democratic field in 2008, in which there was a foot race among the top candidates to outdo the others on the Policy proposals, So it wasn't like, I can articulate the cat tax cut thing better than everyone else, or I'm um, stronger on closing the border. They all say those things. But ideas are being used in the sort of pre-primary jockeying in a way you just haven't seen for a long time. The challenge, back to your original question, is when do we find out if this really is real? Um, I think you find it out when they get into the heat of the primary. Because in primaries, the reason everybody talks about taxes and immigration and securing the border is you want to grab as many primary voters and hit them with the most powerful message as possible and that usually groups around the stuff they already know so what's the kind of old-time religion of the Democratic or the or the Republican Party and then I'm gonna sing right to that you know so my great plan for you know retraining workers may be really interesting and may have lots of Great elements to it, but if I'm trying to win over a room full of people, I'm going to hit them on the sort of sort of regular red meat stuff. So, if a candidate sticks to their new ideas once we really get into the hand-to-hand combat, then we'll know something's happening here. I was talking to somebody in the Obama administration who talked about how great it was in the primary in 2008 because they were all fighting on health care to like outdo each other, and they had to kind of go into more and more detail. About their healthcare plans, and this person who then went into the administration said it was actually great because once you get in the administration, somebody says, "Oh, you know, Harry Reid will never go for that," and the idea just dies. So there was a way in which in the Democratic primary, and this was true tiny bit for poverty, although once Edwards dropped out, everybody stopped talking about it. But um, you know, there was a way in which the competition kind of built on itself, and and everybody was kind of adding more and more in the public conversation about about ideas, which a lot of times just never happen.
0: Our sponsor this week is Stamps.com. Quick, convenient, most importantly, easy to use. That's how you can describe Stamps.com. It will make your mailing and shipping a breeze. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. There's nothing to learn. Stamps.com will give you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage for any letter or any package. They'll even help you choose the best class of mail to get your mail They are on time for the least amount of money. You can drop your mail into any mailbox or hand it to your mail carrier, and you're done. Mailing and shipping has never been easier, and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, if you use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's Stamps.com. Enter GabFest. There's a fascinating election fight shaping up in Tennessee. The state Supreme Court, there five members. uh, there, are appointed by the governor, but then they have to sit for a retention election after eight years of service. The Supreme Court, I think, is currently controlled by Democrats three to two. Emily will correct me if I'm wrong. Three... Judges, just justices, and that on that quarter up for re-election, all democratically appointed, all appointed by Democrats. Uh, the state has gotten redder and redder and redder and redder, and the Republican lieutenant governor, Ron Ramsey, is leading a campaign to oust the three Democratic judges in the retention election, which would allow then Republican Governor Bill Haslam to appoint successors, tipping the balance on that court in favor of Republicans. Uh, Retention elections have typically been pro forma. But occasionally, you saw in Iowa, uh, three Supreme Court justices lost their job uh, over gay marriage decision. There was a famous case in California in the 80s. And it's increasingly seen that these judicial elections and these retention elections are becoming a tool for people with political ends. So, Emily, is it okay to have judicial retention elections?
1: It's a terrible system because almost none of us know who we're voting for or really follow the work of the court. When I used to vote in Pennsylvania when I was younger and lived there— not fraudulently now, I just remember every time I had to vote for judges ripping out the page of the Philadelphia Inquirer that had the endorsements on it, trying to see if my dad, who's a lawyer, knew who they were. He usually had some idea, but it just felt to me like the most ignorant kind of voting I was doing. And that made me really uncomfortable. And I think that's what most people's experiences of these elections are. And so then what you have combined with that problem is... Something you talk a lot about, David, which is that you can get a really big bang for your buck if you make big contributions in these elections. The spending has gone up enormously, but the judges are basically for sale. I mean, I don't mean that in a corrupt sense that they then do your bidding, but –
0: you, Although they do. Want to,
1: but some of them do. And if you want to move the system, these are really good elections to invest in because these people have a lot of power and nobody's really paying attention. Andrew Cohen did this great interview for The Atlantic with someone who is elected to the court in Texas, the Texas Supreme Court. And he said basically that he spends 90% of his time trolling around for these donations, which in order to try to get people to have a tiny, tiny bit of name recognition for him in like the week before the election, because that's the only time they're really paying attention. And it just is a crazy system. And that, I think, explains why you're seeing this increase in spending and elections that become very partisan like these ones in Tennessee.
0: That's a judge calling for John. Judge calling complaint.
2: complain. (laughs) Can I um, – I don't get there's, the, there's a um, – there's also an amendment, uh, a constitutional amendment on the ballot, right, in to, Tennessee? Yeah, you know? to maintain yeah. – to, to, to,
0: to, to, to constitutionally solidify the system they have, I think. the system
2: this that they don't like. This retention election yeah. system. But this is what I don't understand. So Haslam wants – is in support of the constitutional amendment to enshrine the system, but he's against or says he's doesn't want to take part in – The anti-retention.
0: Right. Well, so the Republican governor is saying, yes, he that it's the lieutenant governor who's acting uh, to throw out these judges. And the the governor is saying, oh, I have no part of it. I mean, of course, he wants a part of it. Of course, he he can't actively be out there supporting it because that looks like a a form of interference with a different branch. But is he going to be glad to get a Republican justice that he can appoint? Of course, he's going to be glad to do that.
1: Right. The other weird thing about Tennessee is that the Supreme Court of Tennessee actually appoints the attorney general, which I mean, there must be some other state that does that, but I've never heard of it. And so part of what these justices are getting dinged for was a decision by an attorney general appointed before most of them joined the court not to join the lawsuit against Obamacare. It's this very weird indirect system. Maybe what Tennessee needs is an election for the attorney general and people might actually know who that person is or that person could be appointed by the governor like they are in most states.
2: But I guess my point about the Haslam thing is the argument he makes against going after these judges is that basically they can't react the way political candidates do, and so he doesn't really like that. But then... He's also supporting a constitutional amendment to enshrine the retention election, right?
1: Yes, it's not entirely consistent. I mean, retention elections aren't as bad as, like, electing them from the get-go. Supposedly, it's a little bit better because there are at least people who are in office. They have the benefit of incumbency. It's supposed to be a little more insulated. But as this election shows, not necessarily. But,
0: but, all right, two points. One is, just to climb on your point of a second ago, Emily, this election is super cheap. It's going to be a million-dollar million dollar or so will be spent, and they may throw out a justice and win control of a majority. That is nothing. To take control of a state Supreme Court for a million bucks, couple million bucks, what a great deal. I'd do that.
2: Um,
0: And then the the second point is that the problem – there is a real problem with judges serving too long, though. So it doesn't make sense to – I don't think it's ludicrous to say judge, you get an eight-year term and that's it. That seems totally Sure, but fine. you could
1: have that an appointed term and just have right. a term limit. Sure. I'm all no, for judicial no, term no, limits, judicial but they're limit. not connected to elections.
0: Right. No, no. I think the election clearly is stupid for the reasons that you cited, but it's not stupid to say that the judges should go. And it is a little bit odd to have a state that is as red as Tennessee is. And if you feel that the judicial branch needs to be responsive to The citizens, And maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe that's a non-issue. But if you feel the judicial branch should be responsive to the citizens and to have a a branch of the state government, which is effectively controlled by a minority party, which is such a minority party that it, it has no sway at all in the other branches. And it's it holds it because of because of something that happened many, many, many years ago. It's weird that these that the judicial branch has this sort of turtle like timeline to it while the rest of politics is pretty populist and responsive.
1: Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's not any different from the federal constitution, which also makes the changing of the judicial branch totally out of sync with the presidency or Congress. I think the other thing that's really troubling about these elections is that in order to get a judge tossed, you have to pick an issue that people... See, feel strongly about, and it's almost always criminal justice. Someone who got off the de- from the death penalty or got out of prison. That is, and then there was the same-sex marriage um, issue in Iowa, but that's like the the usual thing is criminal justice. But what's really at stake in these elections has nothing to do with that. It's all about business interests and boring decisions about torts and regulations, things that people are not going to be you know, moved by. And so I really don't like the way in which the campaigning is a proxy for the business interests. And usually, often you see business interests setting up these kind of fake grassroots groups with names that make them sound like they're really about, you know, keeping the death penalty. But but actually, the people pulling the strings only care about this other set of business and labor problems.
2: And we should note that this trend of spending money, we're all i'm I'm focused on the you know where the Senate goes at the end of this election. Will it be controlled by Republicans? But going just expanding on David's point, it's not only cheaper to control the Supreme Court, and I think they're spending oh, there's a lot of money being spent in in North Carolina on not I think not retention elections, but just on straight up elections on the for the Supreme Court. So not only are you spending uh, less money to have more control, But they're actually doing stuff at the state level, (laughs) whereas, you know, in Washington, taking control of the Senate. I mean, of course, it will affect lots of things and it will be different than when the Republicans take over. It will be different than when the Democrats do. But it's cheaper and you're getting more bang for the buck because more is just more is going on at the state.
0: Um, Okay, let's move on to our last topic. Always save the pandemics for last. That's my uh, my mother always taught me. The Ebola epidemic has sowed anxiety and fear across West Africa. The disease is spread in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia. There's a few cases in Nigeria as well. 1,600 cases, uh, almost 1,000 deaths. Ebola is this disease which is, I think, so disturbing to people because it's just a freaky disease. It spreads quickly. The death is horrible. It's almost always fatal. It has this totemic qualities of something that's likely to cause fear in people, even though if you look at it, uh, it causes many, many fewer deaths than other forms of disease, both in West Africa and throughout the world. There's, there are diseases that are much more much more deadly. There are even viral diseases that are much more deadly. It kind of jumped into the American consciousness this week, this latest and worst epidemic, because uh, America's first two cases came back to Atlanta. They were the only two people who've been treated with this experimental drug, ZMAP and uh, there are also two white people who got to to take this drug, so it's raised ethical questions about about treatment and fairness and uh, about medical care for these rich white aid workers as opposed to the poor black Africans who are dying of a disease and it's also this this question about whether is this the pandemic that is going that's going to spread and kill us all so emily let's start with the let's start with the small is it was it wrong for this experimental drug to be given just to these two white American aid workers?
1: Well, probably, but you have to remember that the drug could have killed them. I mean, this is the truths about experimental drugs is that people don't know whether they work or not. And so you have to decide whether you want to be a guinea pig for a drug like this. I think what has struck me in reading about this is um, a point that the bioethicist Arthur Kaplan made, which is that we don't have an international... Mechanism to turn to for deciding who gets an experimental drug at a moment like this where you'd want to make some kind of exception for compassionate use and give people a chance to waive all the normal protections and regulations that protect you from experimental medicine. So because there's no mechanism like that in place, the aid organization that these two white Americans worked for were able to swoop in, secretly bring ZMAP to the hospital in Liberia where they were being treated and then spiritually them home, and it starts to feel like a conspiracy because all these black li- Liberians in the same hospital are not getting the same access,
0: although I thought that another point that Kaplan made was very persuasive, which is that this is a this company ha- has spent a bunch of money, invested a bunch of money to get this drug built and and wants to get FDA approval and wants to get attention from investors. And that's a those are reasonable things for a company that that needs to fund its research to want to do. And so it also has a totally legitimate, indeed ethically legitimate, right to try to get the best possible attention for for its experimental drug, that if it wants its yeah, experimental drug is to get the best approval?
1: possible attention restricted to giving it to two white Americans. Because Ameri- that's to-
0: where that's where the Ameri- media coverage is. Because you rec- that's where your target market is. That's where your regulators are. But I
1: think that at this point that, in the media cycle, ZMAP, that company would have been better off also donating it to a ward of Liberians, if for no other reasons than to cover themselves against all the backlash there's been and the Onion, you know, making fun of them for not having enough white people stricken with Ebola to actually get moving on. You don't that's not helpful anymore.
0: Well, now it turns out now it certainly they should do that and then but then it runs into sort of informed consent problems and public health in those in those countries. It's easier but, to treat someone who's a citizen of, of your country than it is to treat someone Yeah, but someone I who's, think we should talk more about this problem elsewhere. of
1: informed consent because we all get really worried that about people who we think Can't necessarily fully understand the implications of being a guinea pig in an experimental drug trial. There are all kinds of protections and regulations set up for them. We worry about, you know, the Tuskegee trials in the United States where black Americans were given, injected with syphilis. And there certainly have been foreign examples of American companies going abroad and taking advantage of foreigners. And yet... With all of that said, it just seems to me that if you were a Liberian hearing about this, you could very well have perfectly informed consent that you would like to try this drug because you are dying otherwise.
0: So you have this this epidemic in West Africa. It is a it's a disease that, that is killing hundreds of people, and it, and the countries where it has taken root, there is enormous amount of fear, anxiety, public the public health controls are are not working very well because there's so much panic. What is this teaching us about public health measures and about the the role of government in public health and also about what's going to happen when there is a pandemic which is more dangerous than Ebola? Because I don't think for however many hundreds of people are dying now, this is not a disease that's likely to kill millions or hundreds of millions of people.
1: It's teaching us nothing good. I mean, this doesn't feel like a big surprise, but it it always feels at like these moments that we are as a globe woefully underprepared for a pandemic. And of the like, big boogeyman scary threats out there, this seems like one of the more plausible real ones. So even though I actually tried hard to be in a state of denial about every single one of these coming down the pike, along with meteors and other big scary methods of total collapse, I feel like this one, we really should have a better system in place.
0: When you guys mentally rank methods of total collapse which is what i do so so when i was a kid nuclear war was obviously number one D- that's faded so there's nuclear war there's sort of general climate change starvation there's pandemic there is a uh, meteor slash uh big disaster from space what are the what else what are the other ones
1: well, that's a pretty good list
0: where do you mm-hmm. what's what what's your t- how do you
1: well chemical what's warfare your, I what's guess, your fear um, like what's your which are, which recognized. are the ones
0: you fear most with with you, Emily, I would do pandemic. is far and away my number one. Then, kind of the global chaos caused by cli- climate change is two. I guess nuclear wars three. Meteors four.
1: Yeah, somewhere in there, I would throw in mechanized chemical warfare, maybe as like four and a half. John. John, do you have a different ordering?
2: I think. I, yeah, I don't know. I think I tend to think of a, uh, a either a chemical or a not a chemical, but a biological or a nuclear terrorist event is probably highest, but this is pretty close because of, just because of the historical, you know, you think of the Black Plague in the 14th century, I mean, obviously we've regressed in the bubonic plague, although people still get, like, handfuls of people still get the bubonic plague, but... it um, still sounds really dreadful. I mean, and that wasn't, that was just the biggest one that I know about, but there were other bigger, the Spanish flu and all, though it seems to me that there's a historical precedent for this, and even though we have all kinds of measures, both for treatment and also for discovering these diseases, I feel like with the overuse of antibiotics and the global travel that now goes on in the world, I feel like this could get out of hand. I mean, Ebola, they know, unlike, say, the bubonic plague, which is transmitted through fluid. I mean, it's, it's easier to transmit than Ebola, I believe. So I just can um, can conceive of something that would be more easily transmittable through airborne methods. And, and so, yeah, it's
0: pretty high up there. So and is, the, your con- kind of is, is the conclusion that one draws from this is, oh, it's hopeless. Public health measures will collapse in the face of anything. that's a real pandemic. So you might as well just be fatalistic about it. Or, oh, no, this is an argument for really strong, excellent public health measures, better disease tracking, because in fact, you know, if if the governments of Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, and Guinea had stronger public health mechanisms, better quarantines, better, more powerful central governments, they would be able to control it and this could be contained, which, which, which... I
1: think if we were being entirely rational about risk, we would go for stronger public health measures internationally. But I was thinking about a different point based on your ranking, David, which is that Think about the idea of how far nuclear warfare has dropped on our consciousness. I mean, that's like a hopeful, sunny tale, right? Where we in the 80s, it felt like it was looming right above us. The mushroom clouds were about to descend. And now we just don't worry about it as much anymore. Now, maybe that's a little foolhardy. But on the other hand, it kind of shows that people have dealt with an actual danger to some degree and, and been able to combat it.
0: Right, I think we or about I it. think we're pretty good. No, I think we're pretty good about acute dangers and we're not very good about the slow moving ones, which is why the climate change and I put I guess I put pandemic somewhere in between. I think a pandemic which moves relatively slowly but kind of ruthlessly would be very we hard to control. Yeah. No, no, that would be hard to control. That would be
1: bad. Oh, yeah. that's interesting.
0: But one, that's, so we, one what, that's, we, that blazes really super fast, actually, the world would probably mobilize. Because in the,
1: crisis mode. As
0: it will with Ebola. Ebola, this is not going to, you know, there will be thousands of people who will die from this. One hopes that is all. But I don't think it's going to be. It's not going to be the one that takes out Europe. It's, you it's,
2: mean Ebola won't be? Or? Ebola
0: won't be.
1: It doesn't right. spread easily enough. I think like that's right. Saying, but you John. could
2: imagine pretty quickly a shift in some known
1: it's the mutation of the avian flu that's yeah yeah you can imagine
2: like a, a subtle enough shift that would then spread and be untreatable that seems to me to be possible
1: right i mean i think the degree to which we mobilize would be directly correlated to how sure people were that this was actually a huge danger right that would be the question and the problem is how much of a debate we were having about how scary it was
0: all right. Well, let's let's uh, move to cocktail chatter. This is really scary. This is ter- terrifying. Horrible. <laughs> so when you're when you're consuming um, vials, what was that drug during the anthrax scare that everyone stockpiled? Cipro. Sp- yeah. When you're having your cipro cocktails, John Dickerson in Wisconsin, you your your Bloody Mary with bacon, cheddar, pickle, and cipro, Broodwurst. and bratwurst. What are you going to be chattering about?
2: I'm going to be chattering about the. Um, Chicago Architectural Tour, which I took this last weekend when I was doing some work reporting. Uh, Dana Stevens actually was the one who suggested it. So if you're ever in Chicago, you must go on the, the Chicago Architectural Tour by done by the um, Architectural Foundation. It's hard to describe why it's so cool, but it's um, there's so many different interesting buildings and the thinking that goes into them. you never, I don't anyway, ponder just day-to-day architecture in the way that I did during that tour. And there's also so much great history to Chicago. And my favorite little fact that I learned, which you all may already know, but since we were just talking about pandemics, in 1900, Chicago decided to basically reverse the flow of its river, which it used to flow into Lake Michigan, But they were worried that basically because the canal was used, the Chicago River, sorry, was used as a dumping ground for basically everything, that it was polluting the river and Lake Michigan, sorry, that the river was polluting Lake Michigan, and Lake Michigan was where they were getting their drinking water from. And they worried there would be a huge cholera outbreak, and it would destroy the city. So they went about creating this canal and, through a bunch of fancy engineering, reversed the flow of the river. The, the fecal material and other stuff would not go into Lake Michigan, and it then flowed down into St. Louis. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, people in, and in fact, in the, the taverns in Chicago, bartenders are where they would put up signs in the bathrooms that would say, flush hard, they need the water in St. Louis. Um, and they basically just totally reversed, the, through a feat of engineering, reversed the river to, to keep outbreaks from happening. So that's one of the fun facts you learn on the Chicago architectural tour, in addition to all of the cool things you learn about the great architecture that lines the river there.
0: Yeah, there's a fantastic ninety nine percent invisible episode about the reversal of the Chicago River. Which has in fact a good Supreme Court angle, Emily, because St. Louis filed a lawsuit to stop Chicago from opening the canal, but awesome. it was too late. So all the all Chicago shit flowed south. Emily, what is your Cipro? Uh, what are you What are you going to chatter about with your Cipro Cipro beer?
1: One of our Slate colleagues sent around a great story today about a fight going on in the United States Post Office over Harry Potter stamps, where a former Postmaster General resigned from the secret committee that gets to decide what goes on stamps, and he said. That the Harry Potter stamp showed that the post office was prostituting itself to commercial interests. Um, so, I first of all, I just love this as a great dramatic taking of umbrage um, and stand for tradition. But I have to say, I kind of liked the Harry Potter stamp, and the post office response was to say, "Look, like we're trying to reach out to young people and kind of be more populist." And I feel like that is what I love about stamp designs is that they are unexpected and and kind of wacky and. Um, I hope they don't actually get too chastened by this and keep going off in weird, zingy, magical creature directions.
0: Indeed. I want to chatter about a st- strange story that um, – I don't know where I read about it, but there was a uh, – there's a, a picture of a macaque, a kind of monkey, maybe an ape, I think a monkey, a macaque uh, which took photos of itself. It was It basically borrowed a camera – from a photographer named David Slater, and I'm sorry, I don't remember whether Slater put it out there so the macaque would use it or the macaque got hold of it. And the macaque took lots of pictures. The macaques took lots of pictures, some of them aground, but some of them were selfies. They took some selfies, and there's an amazing macaque selfie of this monkey kind of grinning at, at itself, and it's a beautiful photograph. And there was a fight. So Slater, I think rightly, wanted to profit off this photograph, but it had been put up on Wikimedia Commons as a a photo that, that anyone could use, that there was no copyright to. And there's a very interesting legal battle, which probably will get fought out in the court, about who owns the copyright to this photo. Is it the case that no one owns the copyright? That it's a photograph that was taken by no person? No person could be the copyright holder. Is it the case as some and perhaps Wikimedia seems to be claiming that the monkey itself owns the copyright to this photograph, and thus only the monkey can say that it should come down or that, that can decide how it's being used. Or does Slater own the copyright, as he says, because it was his equipment? He set it up for the monkeys to use. A monkey can't possibly own a copyright. These were, it was his film, and he arranged the photo, which I think is the, strong, the strongest argument. But it is, it, it is a really interesting animal rights case and copyright case. And Emily, where do you think it will, how do you think it will settle?
1: Well, the monkey doesn't own the copyright. I don't think that monkeys can own things. It's a super cute picture. So I guess the other thing is, what are we fighting over? Is one imagining that the monkey wants the picture taken down or that the monkey should get all the money that will come pouring in for this selfie?
0: Well, it's hard to see, unless you're like a true animal rights loon, that anyone could claim that the monkey owned the copyright and thus should be able to profit from it. Um, but is it a case where no one owns the copyright? Could it could it be the case that no one owns the copyright?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the guy who set the whole thing up is basically like the puppet master. And so the copyright goes to him. So it seems like the common sense
0: answer. John, do you agree with that? Yes. that's. I think this is charming, but
2: seems obvious. <laughs> I
1: mean, Frivolous. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, poor, you keep thinking this,
1: those deep thoughts, David Plotz, This about poor photographer monkeys. is going
0: to have to sue to get, this, to get this vindicated, to get human rights vindicated. The Gavis is produced today by Andy Bowers, normally our executive producer today. He flew from L.A. just to produce the show because we had uh, two producers out. Andy, it's wonderful to have you back here. Andy Bowers is, uh, as we all know, vegan. Our intern is Max Tawney, who is gluten-free, but he's not vegan. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest, and it has lots of links to what we talked about today. I would bet that our show page is a raw foodist if our show page was anything. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. It's probably fructarian. Our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. You should check it out. It is probably doing a juice cleanse right now. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com, which is paleo, judging by the emails that we tend to get. You should subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe and definitely leave a comment and rating. It helps us a lot. It, it makes iTunes aware of us. It, it makes us more popular, which is all we really want. All anyone really wants to be in the world is more popular. For John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon, I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week. Actually, you know what? We're not going to be back with you next week.
1: Well, I will.
0: Emily be. will. Emily's there's a special Bazelon show. It's going to be an awesome Bazelon-led show. Are you are you pretty excited about that, Emily?
1: I'm really excited. I mean, I'll miss you guys, but I'm excited.
0: It's going to be a doozy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?